Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Julia Davis, creator of the Russian Media Monitor, contributor to The Washington Post, and a columnist at The Daily Beast. Her wide-ranging expertise is not limited to the issue of Russian media and disinformation and is also well-versed in the areas of national security, counterterrorism, and immigration. She's appeared as an expert on a variety of television outlets, including MSNBC, CNN, and PBS. As an investigative journalist, her work has been cited by a multitude of publications, including USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone, and The Hill. Julia is a Ukrainian native, speaks four languages fluently, and holds a master's degree in aviation and spacecraft engineering. Julia, that means you speak three more languages than I do fluently, actually four more languages than I do fluently, and I've only ever flown in an airplane or looked at a spacecraft, so wow. Uh, Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Reed. That is quite an introduction, and I think you're being too modest. You're doing <laughs> quite a lot yourself. Well, thank you. So, Julia, today I want to talk about, obviously, Russia and Ukraine, as well as how Trump, Tucker Carlson, and the rest of the GOP came to love Russia. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your background. So you have quite a resume and an incredibly diverse set of experiences. I mean, speaking four languages and having an aerospace and spacecraft engineering degree, how did you ultimately decide to cover Russian disinformation? Well, when I first moved to the United States, I was just working in the film industry and not really thinking a whole lot about Russia at all. But then when Putin started acting up again, when he invaded Georgia and then he proceeded to annex Crimea, I was noticing that our media seemed to treat the Russian state media as uh, sort of their equal. It wasn't getting much attention how egregiously they lie and also how their propaganda is widespread in the United States which is a big part of their information warfare, which they themselves acknowledge. So seeing this lack of perspective, I started covering it myself and created an entire series called Russia Lies, where I would compile in collections of 20 at a time, and it eventually reached into hundreds, different examples of when Russian state media would lie about something, and I could prove that that was a lie. So that's how I got started. So you were born in Ukraine? That's right. Born and raised in Ukraine. And when did you come to the U.S.? I was 22 when I came to the U.S. 
half of my life I spent there and the other half here. So do you remember the Soviet times? Of course, definitely. So from what you recall, when it was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, to what you're seeing now out of Vladimir Putin, is it a totally different thing? Is it a different regime just, you know, with a different kind of name? It's not communist, but it's authoritarian. What are some of the similarities and differences you see having lived behind the Iron Curtain and now looking at back at it from afar? Similarities I see as far as the so-called elites living great life while the rest of the population is basically on the verge of extreme poverty. And that's one thing that's a constant. But Putin's regime incorporated religion as another facet, which was prohibited basically during the Soviet Union. But Putin uses that as another way of influencing the public, which I don't believe for one moment that he is actually a religious man in any way, shape, or form. So there are some similarities, and there's no ideology, so to speak, as there was in the Soviet Union, although they're trying to develop it now. And to them, it's basically everything that they would call conservative, but really is just oppressive to where if you're not the mainstream point of view, then you are not considered on the same level as everybody else. And you could be freely oppressed, like what is going on in Chechnya, which is part of Russia, but lives by its own rules, the way they're brutally oppressing minorities and killing people of different sexual orientation, and everybody looks the other way. So they're both authoritarian regimes, one with ideology, one without. But as you said, they're trying to develop this ideology now, which seems sort of strange 20 years on from Putin taking over. What kind of ideology is he trying to develop? They're trying to be the opposite of everything that the West stands for. And what their agenda is, is to attract people like the so-called conservatives that really are just white nationalists. And that's basically the ideals that they live by, just a Christian orthodoxy, which Basically, Putin uses that for one reason and one reason only. It's because they advocate total submission to the government, and it works to his favor. So that is their basic ideology, the ultra-conservative, Christian, Orthodox, everything very much opposite of what the West stands for. The other part, too, is that under the Soviet Union, there was obviously a great deal of violence against the citizenry. You go back to the revolution, Stalin, certainly in the purges, millions of people killed, disappeared, became almost a weird sort of more legalistic thing as you got into the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then obviously the thing collapsed. But Putin still uses violence both internally and externally as a really key tool of state power. Most definitely. And you could see what happens to opposition activists. You could see what happened to Navalny. And I always scoff at some of the Western media coverage where they talk about Putin's high popularity ratings, because those really are based on the population, a lot of them just being too terrified to tell anyone how they really feel. And the rest of them are brainwashed by propaganda. And if you can imagine having nothing but Fox 24-7, that does have its effect on the population. Let me ask a question about Navalny. Alexander Navalny is a critic of the regime. 
Putin had tried to have him poisoned on an airplane. He survived, went to Germany, recovered. Then immediately, Navalny immediately went back to Russia, is now in custody somewhere in the modern day gulag, I guess. Why does Putin keep a guy like him alive now? Why not just move him out of the way like he has everybody else? Because he has him in his full control. And also it would be just too obvious. He tried to kill him when he thought that there would be some kind of uh, plausible deniability that he wasn't poisoned, that something else just went wrong with him. But the way he has it set up, they keep bringing new criminal charges against him while he's already in prison and adding more and more years to his term. So the way Putin sees it, he probably doesn't foresee that he will ever leave the prison. And then... um Who's to say that something won't happen there as well, which they're notorious for that. So Putin is just biding his time, but he's certainly not planning to ever release Navalny if he has anything to do with it. So you are living in the United States for 20 plus years now, but again, have this background in Ukraine and and the former Soviet Union. But why take this on? As you said, we just mentioned Navalny. You know, whether or not it was um, Litvinenko who was poisoned, you know, people fall off balconies. I mean, these are pretty tough guys. Why stick your neck out and start to call this stuff out for what it is? Why shine a light? The whole point of being alive is to be able to make a difference. And I have some skills to contribute. And it's certainly worthwhile for me to do what I can to shine a light on what's happening. So it's definitely worth it regardless of the potential danger that might come with it. You mentioned a few minutes ago that the American media tends to take Russian state media, and that's all it is, at face value first before taking a deep breath, looking at something and saying, hmm, if they're telling us this, it's probably not the truth because they'll only tell you what's to their benefit. Why do they swallow everything immediately and then have to go unpack everything when it's clearly Everything is mendacious. Everything is a lie. Probably because it's easier. They're used to doing it that way. And you could see the way they normalize Trump. And he would do the most insane thing. But then you read a write-up about it or listen to reporting on TV. And they make it seem like it's semi-normal. So I guess they're just used to that. It's just easier without doing the deep dive as to what's really taking place. And does that concern you for the current and future state of American free press? Yes, it definitely does. Because first of all, there are things that should be said that might awaken more people. Then secondly, if things are going the way they are, and if we enter or re-enter the Trump era, it will turn authoritarian and then we won't have another chance. So talk to me about why Putin's doing what he's doing now vis-a-vis Ukraine. You know, a lot of the experts on authoritarians say this is not unusual for, you know, he's in his late 60s now. They all believe they're immortal, but they can't outrun the clock. So he feels like he has to do something to reestablish his authority to maybe boost his popularity. Or is it simply about a gas pipeline and NATO? I think it's more about his self-preservation. Putin is looking at Ukraine that is right there, that's always been controlled by one of his puppets, and it was comfy cozy. All of a sudden, Ukrainians managed to overthrow their government and start all over and decide to live as a democracy. 
Putin cannot afford to have them right next to him so that the Russians could see that they too could overthrow their government and live happily ever after and have some rights and freedoms. So it's a huge risk because that's Putin's biggest fear is to end up being overthrown. And he's always talking about the examples of different regimes being overthrown, which usually leads to the death of the the person in charge. So for Putin, it's all about self-preservation. He has to crush Ukraine because otherwise he feels all the more in danger himself because people are becoming more aware of what's happening by Ukraine's example right next door. And he is growing only more paranoid and uh, obsessed with reasserting his dominance and reestablishing control that the Soviet Union had over the Soviet republics, at least those that he can tangibly grab and uh, control. And he's already basically done it with Belarus, where there still is a separate president, but he's already acting as a appendage to Putin and is declaring that he will do whatever Russia decides, even where Ukraine is concerned, even if it comes to an all-out war. And so then continuing north along the Russian border, you've got the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. They're all NATO members. But if you're sitting in those countries, are you paying keen attention to what's happening? Certainly paying attention, but them being in NATO is a major point of uh, feeling secure, which they wouldn't be otherwise. Putin is not crazy enough to start a war with NATO, so they can sleep well for now. But if they were not in NATO, it would be a different story. So let me ask you this. In the conversations, at least as I understand it, Putin and the Russian government want guarantees from the United States and the West that they would not admit Ukraine into NATO. If we said, okay, we won't make him part of NATO, do you think that would be the end of it? Or do you think that would give him a green light to march in to Kiev? It would absolutely be the green light. And uh, it's just a ruse. It's not about NATO at all. Putin is not threatened by NATO. He, He was never threatened by NATO. It's Russia that's invading its neighbors and annexing territories. No one is attacking Russia. Basically, what they decided to do is, it seems like Putin decided, I will station the troops on Ukraine's border, basically holding a gun to Ukraine's head and try to extort something for nothing out of the United States, some sort of a token agreement, which they knew it's a non-starter when they first proposed it. In fact, their experts on all of the state media shows that I watch acknowledge that, that it won't go anywhere and they didn't expect it to. But what they wanted is for the United States to tell them no. And then when they invade Ukraine, then they would say, well, you made us do it. You made it where it's impossible. You didn't agree with our conditions. But it's just a bluff and a ruse. And they never meant for any actual agreement to flow out of it. It was just a game on Putin's part. I mean, Russia has a long history as a country of being, dare I say, sort of paranoid about the West. It was why Stalin said that he needed Eastern Europe as a bulwark against the West post-World War II. He's got Belarus. You know, he says Ukraine can't be part of NATO. Why is the Russian state for so long convinced that the West is out to get it when, in fact, if it just minded its own business, the West would probably mind its own business? What they're most concerned with are the so-called color revolutions. That is the biggest threat Putin sees to 
his dominance is he's convinced that the West is attempting to organize mass protests and an uprising to get him overthrown. They certainly know that the Western countries are not plotting to start any sort of a war, so that's not a threat. They're not afraid of that. He's most afraid of losing his position of power. That's why he's terrified of the West. And the state media, that's one of their mandates, is to convince the general population that NATO is encroaching and they're in danger, and they certainly do their best to convince them of that. But Putin himself doesn't believe that the the main um, issue that he's afraid of is just being overthrown because of the West, because he sees all of the opposition leaders as being pawns of the West, and that's how they spin it to the Russian people anyway, is that those are all agents of the CIA or whatever they want to frame it. Do you think the individual Russian watching that really believes that the big, bad democratic countries are coming for them? You know, it's probably a similar breakdown like we have here. Some people will believe that JFK is going to run alongside Trump. And so there are some people back in Russia that will believe whatever they watch on the mainstream television as well. But there is a large percentage of the population that still has their own critical thinking and knows that it's all propaganda. So a few years ago, I saw a documentary called Our President, and it was about Trump and the lens through which Russian state television covered him. And what was most fascinating was even in 2017 or 2018, when the movie came out, was how much it looked, sounded and felt like Fox News does here. It was striking, concerning, frightening, maybe. And even in your most recent column, you talk about that, which is it's like Russian state media is talking to American conservatives, obviously in Russian, but its messages are clearly getting out here. Absolutely. And, you know, not only in Russian, because look at what's going on even in the case of uh, Tucker Carlson. He admitted that he was in touch with Kremlin intermediaries trying to arrange to interview Putin. Now, you know, if you're talking to Kremlin intermediaries, they're also talking to you. So what exactly did they tell him or maybe are still telling him that he is in turn conveying to his audiences? And some of the guests that he has on his show don't even hide their connections to Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And off screen, what kind of information he is receiving, I would very much like to know because the way he's promoting this idea that NATO exists solely to torment Vladimir Putin, the things he says are certainly the same kind of things I would expect to hear on Russian television. And, I mean, there was even a story, I don't know if you broke it or somebody else did, that even the Russian foreign ministry was sort of like embarrassed by the obsequiousness of Tucker Carlson. Like, even for them, it was like, eh, can you back off a little bit? It's too much. And when you've hit that point, but the Russian foreign ministry, you've really done something. That was in one of my articles. It was one of the Russian journalists said that the way Tucker sounds is it seems that he's been taking lessons at the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He really became just a little bit too obvious. And they were worrying out loud that he would become marginalized and potentially silenced just by virtue of being too obviously a pro-Russian propagandist at this point. 
But this was a guy who was a moderate Republican. He was well inside the mainstream of the Republican Party when he was on CNN. And he's taken this, I don't even want to call it a hard right turn because I don't even know, it doesn't really fit on the ideological scale as we think about it. What causes someone like him to decide I'm going to be all in for the dictator over there? I think it's a total lack of principles. And what he's promoting is meant to ensure that Russia continues to support Trump's presidency, or at least his future potential run for presidency, in which case Tucker probably sees himself as uh, rising even higher on the, the totem pole and being the top propagandist and who knows what else. But it seems like he just doesn't have any principles and things he says are just for political expediency. And it's strange, given the fact that, at least in the United States, Dwight Eisenhower was, you know, the first Republican president of the Cold War, had seen the Russians up close as, you know, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe during World War II. You know, every president culminating with really, let's call it Reagan and George H.W. Bush, took a hard line on the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan, especially so, between, you know, calling them the evil empire, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, you know, driving military spending on things like Star Wars, but also conventional weapons that they knew the Soviets couldn't keep up with economically. To see where, let's say, 60% of Republican voters are now, for someone who grew up there, must be fascinating, given the fact that like Russia has, at least in living memory, always been our, our main foreign adversary. It's actually quite a terrifying transformation. And I remember when the Russians were first boasting about helping to get Trump elected, and then they expressed their disappointment because Congress and the Senate wouldn't let Trump to do what he wanted vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And they were talking about how, well, now we need to worry about electing a pro-Russian Congress. And if you look at what's happening now with Tucker, where he's actually telling people to not vote for anyone that would uh, support assistance to Ukraine or sanctions against Russia. So he's actually, in effect, trying to change foreign policy, and he's trying to get people elected that will be more pro-Russian. And it seems like the Russians are winning in this propaganda endeavor, just as they had very vocally spelled out their intent to do for years now. So. We've talked about Russian media, you know, the transference onto Tucker Carlson and other media outlets, but certainly Carlson first and foremost among them. Now we're talking about he's trying to convince Republican voters to stand with Russia. But now in your latest piece, you talk about how the Russians are ready to have Trump back. So Trump obviously was their useful idiot. And I assume that they want him back because they know he will continue to be that useful idiot, whereas Another Republican president, even if, let's say, they were mildly sympathetic to Russian interests, are not going to be what he is. Absolutely. And from the very uh, beginning, they said that it's not likely that he'll be able to accomplish everything they want in the first term. But they anticipated that during his second term, his hands will be untied. The Mueller investigation will be long out of the way. And they have predicted that. 
if he comes back, he will rule in an authoritarian way. And at that point, he'll be able to do whatever he wants to do. And part of it being contributing to disbanding NATO and letting them deal with Ukraine in whichever way they want. And uh, he's uh, already signaled that very openly when he said that he told Ukraine to fight its own wars, deal with its own problems. He would not be inclined to do anything when Russia reinvades and whatever else they decide to do in that part of the world. So what kind of tactics do you expect that we'll see from the Russians, you know, not only in the balance of this election year between now and November, but also if Donald Trump does decide to run again, what do you think the Russians will do to double down on this desire to have him back in the White House? Well, they've already tapped into whatever their connection with the likes of Tucker Carlson is. Now they have a, a new favorite now as well, Josh Hawley. And uh, they are boasting about other Republicans that are on the verge of flipping to their position. They will continue this information offensive. And it's been one of their lines of propaganda that they could convince the United States that they need to concentrate on China and let Russia do its own thing. And in turn, they would pretend to be very much aligned with so-called conservative values in order to become entrenched and being seen as uh, somewhat of a partner instead of a foe like they are. So the information wars are going to escalate, and they're already signaling which way they're going to hit Democrats to make sure that they lose the midterms and also get Trump elected. They're going to harp on the economy, which of course was mainly caused by COVID, but they will present it as something that Joe Biden should be held accountable for directly. And also all the racial issues, they love to talk about the BLM. They love to support the conservative stance, if you could call it that, on the January the 6th and portray those people as a total group of innocents that are being persecuted. So they will be chiming in into our internal happenings here in the United States and injecting whatever level of propaganda and ratcheting it up. And so as we close out our conversation, and I hope you'll come back closer to the election, what are things that some of our listeners can do to be aware of this sort of thing, to fight back against this sort of thing? There are more Americans who believe in democracy, the free press, free expression, than there aren't, by a lot. But that doesn't mean that bad things and bad people can't take over if we let it. So what were some of the recommendations you'd give to the folks listening? Well, I hear a lot of people talking about how exhausted they are, but it's the worst possible time to be exhausted. So my main advice would be to do whatever you have to do to boost yourself up because we are entering the period where people in general will have to be very proactive to fight for democracy because we're facing a major battle and Trump is not going to come alone. And we need to realize that, you know, when you hear criticism of the government, it may be legitimate, but it's good to look a little bit further and not be automatically willing to receive an opinion someone is trying to project because there are a lot of people with alternative agendas in our information space and unfortunately in our media as well, not to mention social media where 
the Russians will continue to play their hand. They're experts at trolling and manipulation. And another thing I've noticed there, all of a sudden, a lot of so-called experts on what's happening in Eastern Europe. And people are sometimes very quick to offer up solutions when they don't know the nature of the conflict, when they don't quite understand what Russia wants. So my advice there would be to get as educated as you possibly can as to the topics at hand. And don't look on the surface. Try to look a little deeper. Well, always good advice. One last question before I let you go. If Donald Trump is wavering on running for president again and he got a message from the Kremlin, you have to run again, would he do it? I think he would. I think so. All right. Well, Julia, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media? On social media, I'm most active on Twitter at Julia Davis News. And we can find your columns at The Daily Beast? Yes. And where can we find your Russian media monitoring? It's a website called RussianMediaMonitor.com or easier to remember, RussiaLies.com. RussiaLies.com. As always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Julia, I want to thank you for joining me today. Everybody out there, I hope you stay safe, healthy, take a deeper look at things, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.